And uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and I'm glad you're here. Hope you're ready. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series today. I always like the starting and the, uh, the new series. It just gives us a new thing to focus on. And this series is going to take us right up to Easter. So we're going to be here for about six weeks. And as you can see behind me, it's, uh, the focus is the resurrection. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians right before 2 Corinthians. Uh, but we're going to be in chapter 15 for the next six weeks, kind of walking through and drawing out uh, God's Word and what it means to us and how to apply it. Um, but before we hop into the passage this morning, um, parents, let me talk to parents for a second. Uh, have you ever said to your kids, hey, don't forget to, and then fill in the blank? So what are some things that we tell our kids, don't forget to, Brush your teeth. That, that goes on in our house, too. Wear your retainers. Don't have any retainers in our house, but maybe one day we can add that to our conversational list. Don't forget to feed the animals. Yeah, they... they to, to feed the what? Oh, go get the eggs. Okay, so I thought you said feed the eggs. It's like, I don't know how you do that. You have to... Don't forget to take your insulin. Yeah. Everyday conversation. Don't forget to do your homework. What's that? Don't forget to be kind. Don't forget to keep the dogs in the, feed the dogs. Yeah, all right. And so like as, as our kids get older, um, you know, for, for Ethan, I'm sorry, you're the pastor's kid, so you always have to have illustrations about you. You get used to it and uh, you can go to therapy later. Um, but, you know, when they went off to camp for the first time, hey, don't forget to take clean clothes. Don't forget to take clean underwear. Don't forget to take your toothbrush, right? Don't forget to bathe. Yeah, Axe spray is not bathing. It's that, that's like torture for everyone else. Um, you know, and there are, there are things I know kids, we tell our, you tell your parents, don't forget. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad was a pastor, and there would be times I have to remind my dad, hey, don't forget to pick me up. You know, <laughs> I'm at school, this is when I'll be done with practice, this is when school will be over, please do not forget to pick me up, because that was before cell phones, um, and I mean, there was cell phones, but it came with a backpack, um, and so you had to get to a, a phone, and you had to call collect, and hope that your parents were at a place where they would be around a phone, and say, hey, I'm here, please don't forget to pick me up. Um, we're we're going to be focusing on that this morning, about what is one thing as a Christian as a believer, that we should never forget? Is it, you know, don't forget to take your Bible to church? Don't ever forget John 3.16? Uh, don't forget where you normally sit at church, you know, because that little running joke, you all give yourself a signed seat. Um, our series is focusing on the resurrection. We're going to be in chapter 15, and it's known as the resurrection chapter in the New Testament, and you're going to see why as we go through this for the next several weeks. You know, as I get older, and I know... Um, you all can agree with me. Richard Campbell and I have had this conversation numerous times. Not that Richard Campbell and I are the same age, but, you know, we, we have similarities. You know, forgetting. Forgetting where you put your keys, right? Ever, you have a spot where you normally put your keys, but you don't put them there, and then you forget where you put them. You forget where the remote is. Uh, you, have you ever done this where you say, well, I'm going to put this here because I know I won't forget that I put this here? And then you forget where that place that you knew you would never forget it was there. 
And I'm finding myself, as I get older and I get into conversations with people, and this is probably the worst, is when you're in the midst of a conversation and you actually stop and, I call it a brain fart, um, but you say, what was I talking about? You ever done that yet? That's fun, isn't it? You know, or I, I forget what I was trying to say. You forget what point you were trying to get to. Um, well, Paul lays out there are, there are things that we should not forget and part of and one of those things is the power of the resurrection and the gospel of the resurrection. And so in 1 Corinthians, which is actually not the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, he mentions a previous letter, but it doesn't seem that the believers have gotten to understand what Paul is trying to relay to them and they haven't applied it. The church in Corinth is a very problematic church, especially for Paul. Because Paul loves this church. He loves these people, but they're frustrating the tar out of him. Much like us parents get frustrated with our kids when they forget to do something. We, and so this is what Paul is coming before this church and writing them. It's a church of division. It's a church that within the church there is sexual immorality. It was full of social cliques, arrogance, self-interest, self-promotion, and theological confusion matters of divorce and marriage and participation in pagan religions, corporate worship, they were confused about the resurrection of Christ and confused about their own resurrection when Christ returns. There was a lack of reverence to the holiness of God and therefore a lack of reverence to the holiness that God has called His people to live in under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does in writing to the believers is to break them from the culture to which they live in so that they might live a life different, a life that was lived for Christ. So it's a letter to the church about God's people being different. And if you need a purpose for the letter of 1 Corinthians, it can be found in verse 2 of chapter 1, where Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, the word sanctified means set apart in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul is wanting believers in Corinth to understand and submit to Jesus' lordship and the authority of Jesus over their life, saying that everything that they do belongs to him. Every outlook that they have should be his outlook. Every action that they have should represent Jesus Christ. It is a letter about Jesus' authority over the believer's life, which is for us as well. But what gives Jesus authority over our life? It's the resurrection. It's the power of the resurrection and the good news of the resurrection. So let's walk through. We're going to be verses 1 through 11 this morning. And we're going to walk through and, and see what Paul wanted these believers to remember as we need to remember. Verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that He appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and in His grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. And let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for just the incredible opportunity to be once again with your people in your presence. And Father, we cannot understand what we need to understand without your hand upon us, without your spirit guiding and leading us and opening our eyes to see truth and hear truth. So Father, I pray that eyes and ears would be open this morning, that hearts would be softened. Father, you would change us. You would continue setting us apart. I pray for those here this morning who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, you would grant them that mercy of revelation, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would know that their eternity is secure in your hands and they have a place in heaven with you. We pray for those who can't be here this morning, whether it's sickness or other issues, but Father, you would place a desire in their heart to once again return to the body of believers. And Lord, we just pray that your will and kingdom would be done in this moment. So use me as an instrument of your righteousness. Don't let my sinful nature get in your way of what you want to have done this morning and what you need to have done this morning. Forgive me where I have failed you and forgive us if we have failed you, if we have not been worshiping you in the way you've been seeking after this morning. Lord, let us love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength in this moment so we may love the people you've placed in our lives. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So let's kind of walk through this. Paul begins by reaching out to the Corinth believers, and here in chapter 15 he says, Now I would remind you, brothers. This is meant to be a gentle rebuke to the Corinthian believers to draw their attention. That word remind means to cause information to become known. It's to reveal something. Paul is basically in this moment saying, I want to make this as clear as I possibly can so you can understand what this means for your life. So the Spirit of God gave Paul the wisdom to know that when our views of the resurrection and the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, when our views of it is, are out of whack, our life will get out of whack. Things will not go the way God had intended. When, God, when Paul says brothers there in verse 1, that is actually a gender-neutral Greek word. It, it does not imply just men are being spoken of to at this moment. It is like when we look at a group of people, so we have boys and girls over here, and say, hey guys, you're not all guys, but it's a group clustering. That's what Paul's doing with brothers here. He's clustering the whole church together. And he's wanting to remind the believers and, and the reminder that we need in life concerning the gospel resurrection is first the method of the gospel. Look there in verse 1 and 2. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. To understand the resurrection, we need to understand how we come to understand the resurrection personally. And it must begin with preaching. The gospel has to be preached. The word preach means to be proclaimed. Without the preaching and proclaiming of the gospel, no one can know the power of the resurrection. In the book of Romans, we read, How then can they call upon Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone Preaching. That was, that was pretty weak. That was really weak. How are they to hear without someone? Preaching. The power of the resurrection and the good news of what Jesus did 
has been preached to us at one moment in time in our life to the point that we understood it. It was relayed by an individual that God placed in your life at the exact moment you need it so you could fully understand the power of the resurrection and the good news that is the resurrection. And then we, like the Corinthian believers, believers we received it. So someone relayed to it, and what the gospel does is the gospel causes a reaction. It will always cause a reaction. And sometimes it is negative, and sometimes it is positive. But the gospel will always re cause a reaction in people's lives. Paul says, I preach to you, which you received. That word receives means that they didn't just hear it, but they accepted it into their life. They welcomed the news of the resurrection and Jesus Christ into their life. And through that welcoming, that receiving, see, when I receive the gospel, when I say that is truth, I believe that is truth, and I want forgiveness for my sins in Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection, I am making a commitment. That's what Paul is reminding these believers. You have committed to this gospel. You have committed to this resurrection, which is huge and can be easily overread right here in this moment, except when we understand the context of Corinthians. This is a church that is struggling with their godly commitments. And so what is Paul doing? He's bringing them back to the original commitment. You received this. I didn't force you to do this. You made this commitment personally, but your actions are not revealing the gospel to which you are living in. They're not revealing the power of the resurrection to which you claimed to have believed and received. And Paul says, when you received it, it's in which you stand there at the end of verse, verse 1. Standing in the gospel means when I receive and accept the power of the resurrection, I state to the world as a believer, this is where I stand. I stand with God's kingdom. I stand with God's word. I stand with God's will. I stand as an, as an ambassador for God's purpose for all people. And we make, make, may make other stands in life. You watch the news today and people are making political stands left and right. And some of us in this room have different political views. That is fine. Some of us stand with certain professional athletes or certain professional uh, teams. That is fine as well. But no stand that we make for this world should be greater than the stand we make for the gospel. And when people see Christians, God's people, followers of God, standing for something with more conviction than the gospel, that's when it gets out of whack. And this is why Paul says, I need to remind you of this. This is where you stand because you've got all this other stuff going on and this is why it's going on because you forget where you're supposed to be standing. He goes on to tell them, and by which you are being saved. So the gospel is preached, it is relayed. The gospel is received, it causes reaction. The gospel leads to a new devotion or a result Finally, the gospel leads to recurring action. By which you are being saved seems like a very strange phrase, but what it means is that it does not mean that the gospel has not been accepted by the believers in Corinth. Because if they haven't accepted the gospel, we have to ask, have I actually accepted the gospel? By which you're being saved reveals this about the gospel, reveals this about our salvation. Our salvation is never stopping and is always working. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the resurrection. It's not that I was saved in this moment and, and that's it. That was the first and final step. That is not salvation, though we tend to define salvation that way. When I was saved at the age of five or the age of seven or whatever, 
Salvation, biblically, is a continuous progression in the life of the believer. This is what Paul is laying out. Is which, if, by which you are being saved, meaning that it presently happened, but the power of the gospel and the resurrection is that it is progressively happening in our life. God is continuously doing the good work in us and setting us apart from this world, the world word sanctification. When we understand that God doesn't just want to save us, but He wants to continue to work in us and through us, then we understand our salvation and the power of the resurrection in the gospel. It's not just a moment in our life, but a continuous act that God is doing in our life. That's what Paul says when he says, which you are being saved. But then he kind of gives them that moment in church where we have the stepping of the toes. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached you, unless you believed in vain. This is a big statement that Paul's making. He's calling them out. He's holding them accountable to the commitment that they made when they accepted the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's letting them know by the actions that they're doing right now, which he has dealt with up to chapter 15, that they're flirting with very dangerous waters. To hold fast is to not deviate from the message to which we have received and accepted and have committed to. It means that we are on no authority to change what God has already placed in His Word. We cannot fit it to fit our own sinful and personal needs. God said it, and it is set in stone for eternity. And so Paul says, unless, and he's stepping on their toes. He's trying to awaken them spiritually. He says, because of the way you're acting, your actions are not matching the gospel to which you received. And so maybe, possibly, you didn't fully understand the commitment that you were committing to and you believed in vain. Or maybe you're changing it to fit what you want to do instead of what God has called you to do. And that's not the power of the gospel or the resurrection. We do not get to define God's terms of salvation. That's God's terms. We read His Word and allow His Spirit to lead us so we are living by what He says, this is how it's to be. Paul's wording here also lets us understand there are going to be people in our life that are going to hear the gospel presented, preached from us. And they may have received it at one point in time, but they turn away. We believe biblically the Bible lays out that when we are saved, we are saved. We are signed, sealed, delivered in the hands of God. Nothing can separate from God's love. But Jesus also points out in his parable called the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, there are individuals who can hear the word of God, they can receive it and accept it. But because God loves us, he still gives us free will that we and other individuals can walk away from God. We can deny the power of the resurrection. We can deny the power of the gospel. We can deny the working of the Holy Spirit. And so people may have a salvation moment, but because salvation wasn't a continuous action in their life, they walk away. So they understand that they decide they don't want to make that commitment. I think we forget about that in church when it comes to Christianity. We are making a commitment because God has made a commitment to us. That doesn't mean we always get it perfect. Paul lays out that he struggled himself with the gospel and struggled himself with living the gospel. But it's a commitment we make. 
point is the gospel is meant to change everything about us. This is why Paul says in verse 3 that he was defined by the gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first important what I also received. You say, look, I received it just like you received it, and this was the most important thing that I could possibly give you. It wasn't me coming to stay with you. It wasn't me spending an amount of time with you. It wasn't my physical presence. It wasn't even me helping establish the church there in Corinth. The most important thing that I gave to you was the gospel. It was the preaching and proclaiming and presenting of the gospel. And because it was important for Paul, Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to have it to be important for them, which means it should be important for us. How do people in our life define us? You know, when I was growing up, I was the preacher's kid. That, that's how people define me. Well, that's the preacher's kid. When I got into high school, I was the football player. And that's how people knew me in the community. Now we live in Stratford. You know, I'm the, I'm the neighbor. I'm the husband of Mrs. Hurchin. I mean, that's how kids know me when I show up at school. Hey, it's Mrs. Hurchin's husband. And they don't, that, that's it. I mean, she's more popular than me. That's fine. I'm, I'm humble. I'm cool with that. But I'm also, you know, the pastor. And that's a title I'm given. But does the title that I'm given, does that mean that people define me as a gospel presenter and a gospel liver? Because if people are not seeing the gospel coming out of my life and out of my words and out of my actions, has the gospel really defined me at all? Has it really changed me? When people see us, when they see you, do they say, there's someone who's defined by the gospel. Because all they see in you is the good news of Jesus Christ coming out. What is the gospel? The gospel is about Christ. It is about what He has done, not what we can do or who we even think we are. Unless that is what we're doing for Christ and who we are in Christ. The church in Corinth was struggling to realize that the gospel is meant to define them. It was meant to set them apart so that when the world looked at them, they saw something completely different. This is what it means to be a Christian. When I accept the gospel, I receive a changed identity and an outlook by God. Timothy Keller writes, When we accept the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection, we are now loved and treated by God as if we had done all the good things that Jesus did. This is what it means when we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's what it means when the Bible says we are justified before a holy God. We are no longer seen or found in our sin before God, but we are seen and found in Christ's perfection and power. That's the power of the gospel. That's what we have accepted into our life with the resurrection. The problem we have is the same problem as the Corinthians have, is that we possibly may have believed this in vain. Because there are a lot of preachers out there and there are a lot of churches out there. But you need, you need to hear this. Not every preacher and not every church preaches the gospel. Not every podcast that calls itself Christians is a gospel presenter. And so we have to know what is actually the gospel. And that's why Paul lays out the simplicity of the gospel in verses 3 through 8. He says, I delivered to you as first importance which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, meaning in accordance to how God ordained it and planned it. 
that He, Christ, was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, who is Jesus' half-brother, also the writer of the book of James in the New Testament. James and Peter would be the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So then He appeared to the apostles. Last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Here's the simplicity of the gospel. And praise the Lord, we don't need a doctorate to understand it. Jesus died for our sins. Not His, for ours. He died in our place. And then He was buried, which was the proof of His death. And the reason we can understand that He was buried and why that's important is because Rome... When they did a crucifixion on Golgotha, those Roman soldiers, they would have had a Ph.D. in crucifixion. They would have understood the cross. And they would have understood when someone was on the cross that they were dead and they hadn't fainted or they weren't faking it. Because if the Roman soldiers at Golgotha got it wrong and they brought someone off the cross before the cross did what only the cross would do, and the cross was 100% efficient in killing. That's what it was. It was a killing machine. But if they brought someone off before they were dead, then the Roman soldiers would receive a cross of their own. And so when Paul says here that he died for our sins and that he was buried, he's saying that it it happened. That's the evidence that he was dead and the Roman soldiers would have known it. And then it says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. His resurrection shows His power over sin and His power over death. And then four times, Paul says that He appeared. That word, He appeared, doesn't mean like, oh, He just showed up one day. It means that He was physically witnessed. He was physically seen by these individuals. And Paul drives home the point here. He not only appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And he puts that in, most of whom are still alive, because he's saying this, if you don't want to believe me, if you don't want to believe the the story and the accuracy of the story, then go ask these individuals who are still alive and breathing as eyewitnesses, and they will tell you what I delivered to you of first importance. If you don't want to take my witness for it, then go take theirs. Over 500. And he appeared to James. And he appeared to me. To the simplicity of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, he rose again, and he was witnessed. Now we don't have the pleasure of the Corinthian believers where we can go and, and, and see eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ. But we do have history. And history reveals that Peter and James and the majority of the apostles all died horrendous deaths. They were martyred for the faith. Now, if it were a lie, and they made some pact that we're going to spread this lie around the world, would they really have all died knowing that they were dying for a lie? Now, we're not talking about, you know, instant death. Some of them were pulled apart by horses. Some of them were burned alive at the stake. Some of them were crucified upside down, crucified the same way Jesus was. John, the only apostle who did not die for the faith, was actually burned in a pot of oil before they sent him off to Patmos where he saw the revelation of 
the revelation of revelation. At any point in time, all they had to do was say, it's not true. We did not see Jesus. We made it all up. At any point in time, and, and they would have gotten out of all of that pain and all that persecution. But they died for it. And then these 500 witnesses, many of them would have been martyred for the faith. Rome was not a happy place to be if you were a Christian at many times in Rome's life. But Paul says, I have such conviction, I have such a belief of the simplicity of the gospel and the power of the gospel that I know this is not a made-up story, but this is reality. And because it's reality, it should change us. Then we see the grace of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9 through 11. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That was before God, or Paul understood the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel. God got a hold of him. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That's kind of a play on words going back to, unless you believed in vain, well, I know what I've received. And that grace that I've received is not in vain. It has not been worthless in my life. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And he's speaking of the other apostles at, the, at this moment. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The grace of the gospel. Grace is unmerited, unwarranted, undeserved favor from a holy God. And Paul says three things about grace to which we need to understand. We are not only gospel-defined, but we are grace-defined. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We are defined by God's grace. Without God's grace, you are still guilty in sin. Without God's grace, you are not free, but you are in fact dead. You are the walking dead if you do not have God's grace on you. Paul understood there was nothing that he had done to deserve God's grace. Yet he understood God's gospel. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He lived opposed to all that God stood for. And when we understand that we're found in grace and defined by grace, we become empowered to live out our salvation. Kyle Eidelman writes that grace empowers me to stop thinking about what has been, has been done to me and start thinking about what's been done for me. And just as the gospel, Paul was not defined by his own merit. Paul understood all he could do and all that he had ever done in his life was rubbish. Remember that word from a couple weeks ago? Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul understood Jesus' resurrection and God's grace to him to which he now stood was his only desire and all he wanted people to know. He said he wanted to be found in Christ because he understood he didn't have a righteousness of his own but that which came through faith in Christ Jesus. The grace which defined Paul is no accident. God doesn't make accidents. Amen? You aren't here today by chance to hear God's gospel, resurrection power, and God's grace. God's grace is grace-directed. Look in verse 10. It says, And his grace toward me was not in vain. Again, Paul is toying with that word about them believing in vain. He says, you know what? God's grace toward me was not in vain. It was, it was, it was personal. It was intentional. 
And so when we understand the power of the resurrection, we understand the gospel, we understand that we live under God's scope. His grace radar is always on our lives. There's not going to be a moment the rest of this day you are not under God's grace. There's not a moment the rest of this week, no matter how bad you get, you are not under God's grace. God's grace is always on us. It is always directed to us because if it wasn't, we would die before His holiness. He always has His grace on us, particularly and only if we are found in Jesus Christ. Finally, he says that we're not only defined by grace, and God's grace is not only directed on us, but grace, we are grace dependent. Paul understood who he was. He understood that the grace he was given could not be repaid, but that didn't keep him from working, he says in verse 11, harder than any of them. Paul understands something we all understand. All we do is not by our own power, but by the grace of God that was within me. I can only pastor because of God's grace. We can only represent God in this world because of God's grace. We have God's unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted favor upon us. Think about that for a second. The creator of the heavens and earth who will judge all living beings has set his grace upon us. He has directed it on us. He has defined us by his grace so we might be dependent on it. And when we are dependent on it, we are dependent of the gospel, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it is the good news and the power of the resurrection to which we understand grace. Jesus died for our sins. That's grace. In his classical book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called The Cost of Discipleship, he coined two phrases, cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is what Paul is telling the Corinthian believers and us today to avoid. Because cheap grace has no power. It does not change us. It calls us to question if we have believed or if we've believed in vain. But costly grace, what Bonhoeffer writes, costly grace is grace which calls us to follow. It calls us to that commitment. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. It is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. This is the grace and the gospel and the power of the resurrection to which we have committed to and are called to live out in this world. But here's the question. Is that what people of the world see in us? Do they see a power of the gospel resurrection? Do they see God's grace coming out of us? You may be here this morning and you first need to accept God's grace through his gift. That's the gospel. The gospel means good news. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, has created every human being for a relationship with him issue we have is we have sin in our life. And that sin is separating us from the love of the Father, from the grace of the Father. And so God sent His Son to pay the price for our sins by dying, by going into a tomb, by rising three days later, that we might find complete forgiveness and understand the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection. And the Bible says, when I believe that God loves me that much, 
and that Jesus Christ rose from the grave that I could be completely forgiven and I believe that in my heart but then I confess it with my mouth I will be saved you may be here this morning and that's the commitment you need to make you need Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior it's not something someone can decide for you it's a decision you have to make yourself but maybe you're here this morning and the Spirit has prompted you already that you have not been allowing the gospel and grace to define you so people have not been seeing the power of the resurrection out of your life. And you need to come and kneel before the Father and repent and apologize to Him. I know all week long God has been pounding my heart about it. We're going to come to a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Bridget and Nick to come on up and lead us. I want to pray over us. I'm going to invite you to come. If you need to accept Jesus, just come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. We'll pray. We'll celebrate. Maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father and talk to Him. You don't have to come down to do that. You can do that where you are. But this is time where we not only are hearers of God's word, but doers, responders. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace, which is abounding and never-ending. Thank you, Lord, despite our lack of faith and our unfaithfulness at times, it never stops you from being faithful. You are good. You are loving. and You are kind. Forgive us, Lord, when we have made that cheap. Lord, let people see the power of the resurrection and, and the power it's had over our life, not only in this moment, but throughout this day and throughout this week. Let it be a, let's be a people who are defined by it. Thank you for allowing us to be in this place where we can be rebuked and correct and disciplined and trained for righteousness. And Lord, if I got in your way at any point in time, Lord, just take that from our memory. Let us only have your word take root. Again, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for what you're doing this moment by the power of your Spirit. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.